Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Second Samuel chapter 6. God has established David as king over the southern tribes of Judah. That was his first anointing, really, uh, where he is officially king. And then most recently, we saw that God established him as king over the entire nation of Israel following the death of Saul's son, Ishbosheth. And last time, we saw that God gave David that throne, and then God gave David protection from the Philistines when the Philistines realized that now they have this unified nation and this could be a potential threat to their, their, the occupation of their land and so on. And so God protected them when uh, David and Israel fought against them. And the clear reason for why they had success, according to chapter 5, verse 12, was that the Lord was with them. The Lord was with David. And um, it was God who was responsible for the establishment and the protection of Israel and its capital, its new capital here at Jerusalem. And if Israel was going to have future success, then they needed the continued certainty of God's presence. And the greatest expression of God's presence during the time of David was the Ark of the Covenant because it was a symbol that God was there, that God resided over the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat or on the mercy seat. And so David decides that now that things are starting to settle down here for me as king, I'm going to bring this Ark of the Covenant to this uh, capital Make sure that the symbol of God's presence is here where the the nation's capital is, the city of David. And that's what this chapter is all about. I'm going to read our chapter for us, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. 
David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when the bearers of the ark had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitudes of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today! He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this, and I will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken with them, I will be distinguished. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Here in Second Samuel 6, we see that believers must reverently and joyfully worship God. Believers must reverently worship God. That's verses 1 through 11, the story of Uzzah. And then uh, joyfully, it's the story of Michael, really. Uh, it's really about David coming, bringing the ark to the city of David. And then Michael serves as the antagonist, or the protagonist of the story. So believers should reverently and joyfully worship God. So in verses 1 through 11, we see that believers should reverently worship God. And I think they had the right motive going here. David's leading this whole procession. I think he had the right motive. I'm going to argue that he had the wrong manner. He, he handled it in the wrong way. David's task in his mind was to bring the ark, the symbol of God's presence, to the political capital of Israel. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, "...to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim." Because God resides there, His special presence is at the ark of the covenant. I want God's presence in the city. And so David effectively invites God to join Israel at the capital, which God had really established for them. He didn't simply want to use the ark or God's presence only at the time of battle. David wanted to make sure that God's presence was at the center of everything that they did. Now, this is different from what, from how Saul handled the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember from 1 Samuel, I think it was 1 Samuel 6. Remember, he saw the Ark of the Covenant more as a lucky charm. That when he was struggling in battle, he said, why don't you guys go and bring the Ark of the Covenant here? Maybe we'll do better. Well, instead of doing better, they actually 
lost and they had the, the Ark of the Covenant stolen from them by the Philistines. And even after that, when the Ark was returned to Abinadab's house, Saul had no intention of touching it. He wasn't concerned about God's presence coming back to Hebron or coming back to, um, to Gibeon, the, the location of Saul's capital. He wasn't concerned about retrieving it. So here, David actually shows a, um, a, uh, an expression of his character, that he's concerned about God's presence. And so he wants to see God's presence there at the capital. And so he takes 30,000 men, verse 1. He doesn't take this lightly. He doesn't simply you know, have the ark FedExed back to Jerusalem. He doesn't have a few guys go pick it up, you know, three men in the truck or something, bring it back home. Instead, he brings his whole army, effectively, a huge representative of men to bring back the ark. Now, part of that probably is uh, not just because it's such a huge procession, but, but also to protect anyone who might want to steal it. Just like, remember when Israel, in last, the last chapter, chapter 5, when Israel had defeated the Philistines, one of the things that they captured were their idols. Well, the pagan, um, the pagan nations also saw the Ark of God as an idol. And so they would want to steal that. That way, their God, in their view, couldn't help Israel anymore. So if we had possession of, of their, uh, what they would call an idol, then they would think they have control of our God. Obviously, this is just a symbol. It's not an idol. Um, and, uh, and certainly they can never take control of our God. And so David takes this huge contingent of men and he takes his men over to their, um, in verse 2, Baal, Judah, which in the margin of your Bible you can see is also Kiriath, Jeharim. And that's where the ark had stayed. It's the same city, even though it goes by two different names. Um, and it had resided in Abinadab's home for 20 years. Kiriath-Jerim was eight miles from Jerusalem. So here's the task. Let's take our soldiers. We're going down eight miles to Abinadad's house in Kiriath-Jerim. We'll pick up the ark eight miles back. We can do this. How long do you think it would take to walk 16 miles? Okay, for them, they're doing it all the time, so it's probably a lot easier than, than for us, but, but probably a day, right? They should be back by dinner time. We'll have the ark back at home. Everything's going to be good. In verse 2, step 1 is accomplished. They make it to Abinadab's house. Verse uh, 3, we see step 2 is accomplished. They get the ark. So they make the trip to the ark. They get the ark. And now they begin step 3, which is to bring the ark back. And then we see that in verse 4. They have this huge procession going in front and behind it. Notice what David and all his men are doing in verse 5. It says that they're celebrating before the Lord. All kinds of instruments. This is a huge... A parade, effectively. God's presence is coming back to Jerusalem. See here, David and the people of Israel have a good motive. They want to see God and His presence living among them. And so it appears that David's choice to have the ark come back couldn't go any better. It's being led by joyful praise. However, we see in verses 6-11 through that the, um, the worship of God, the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant must be done in the right manner. Here it's done in the wrong manner. And there's a hint of a problem here in these first five verses. It turns into a catastrophe in the next six verses. The first five verses, they go after the Ark. And there's a hint of a problem that we didn't really cover when we looked at it. 
And that is the mode of transportation. The mode of transportation. The mode of transportation that they used to return the ark back to Jerusalem was careless. It was done without thought. It was done without thought of what God wanted. You know, it, it might have had the mindset, you know what, as long as we're doing what is right or we have the right motive in view, it doesn't matter how we do it. And what God's going to show them is, yes, it does matter how you do it. It's not enough just to have the right motive. The task of bringing the ark to Jerusalem quickly moves from a time of joy and celebration to a time of sorrow and fear because Uzzah reaches to, to try to steady the ark as the cart starts to, to tip. And God kills him for it. Can you imagine the sounds that there must have been? The celebration, this great sound of celebration that you probably hear for miles. It turns to quickly to silence as everyone realizes what happens. Uzzah is dead. And it was no accident. God responded to Uzzah's action with anger and judgment. So at the end of verse 6, as the ark's coming to the threshing floor, it begins to stumble and the oxen are nearly upset and and so, verse 7, the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah and God struck him down there for his irreverence and he died there by the ark of God. God responds to Uzzah's action with anger and judgment, saying you cannot bring the ark back to Jerusalem or to Jerusalem for the first time in this way. In this way. And I said there's a hint of the problem here uh, in verse 3. We, we kind of skipped over this, but verse 3, they placed the ark of God on a new cart. So that's the problem. The mode of transportation is on this cart. We'll talk about why that's the problem here in just a minute. After David realizes what happens that Uzzah's dead, he responds with, with um, anger and fear. Verse 8, David became angry. Verse 9, David was afraid. He became angry and he named that city Perez-Uzzah, which means the outbreak of Uzzah or the outbreak against Uzzah. Do you remember in chapter 5, verse 20, when David named that city where they defended themselves against the Philistines? He named it Baal-Perazim, that same word Perez, which means outbreak. And it just means the Lord of the outbreaking, the Lord who's going to outbreak against the Philistines. And here in chapter 6, verse 8, is the outbreaking against Uzzah. There it was against their enemies. That makes sense. But here it's against Uzzah. So now the city remains a, a reminder for them. This is the place where God poured out His wrath on Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord in verse 9. And he says, how are we ever going to accomplish this task? How are we ever going to get the ark to come to me? I mean, this task was supposed to take a day and now it seems impossible. And because of his anger and his fear, David didn't feel like they could safely move the ark anymore. And so he left it at the home of likely a Levite here in verse 10, Obed-Edom. And God blessed that house while, while it was there at his house. So what, what, what went wrong? Why was Uzzah killed for doing something that was apparently helpful? 
mean, why was God unwilling to allow the ark to come to Jerusalem? Did God not want to live among the Israelites? And as you can see from the point in the outline, what I'm suggesting is that the problem is that it was transported in the wrong manner. That they put it on a new ark in verse 3. And at first glance, we might think, well, that's a good move. Because a new ark kind of suggests that, that David's not just going to use the same old ark that is still sitting on. He's going to put a new ark because it's the ark of the covenant and probably a ritually clean ark because you're dealing with the ark of the covenant, the ark of God's presence. So at first glance, you might think this is a good way to handle the ark. And at the time of the attempted transportation, David thought that this was the best method of transportation. But after Uzzah dies, we know and David now knows that that wasn't the best method of transportation. And we know from 1 Chronicles 15, which is a parallel passage to what we're looking at here, that, that David actually spent some time over these next three months looking into the Scriptures to see what the Scriptures had to say about what the proper method was for transporting the ark. And he discovers something that we already know. And that is that the ark was not supposed to be transported just in any way that a person wanted to. Just in a way that's convenient, right? Put it on the ark behind a couple of oxen. They do all the work. No skin off our back. No muscles expended on our part, right? No, we know that it was supposed to be carried on poles, according to Numbers chapter 4 and 7. And so the first problem was that David didn't have the ark carried on poles like God had commanded them in the law of Moses. The second problem was that the ark was supposed to be carried by Levites, specifically of the Korathite clan. And these men apparently aren't Levites. The third problem was that no one was supposed to touch or even look at the ark. I don't know if you remember this from when we looked through Leviticus, but, but the only person who ever saw the ark was the high priest. And that was one time a year. Because whenever they would transport the ark, he would have to go in, cover up the ark. They would tear everything else down around it, put it on poles and carry it. It was always covered. Except for when he would go into sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. They weren't even supposed to look at the ark, let alone touch it. That was the third problem. Do you remember what happened when the Israelites and Bashemesh looked at the ark? Remember the Philistines they were starting to get cursed because of this ark. Dagon, their god, falls down and then falls down again. They're like, we can't have this thing in our place anymore. So they send it away. And the, the Israelites in Bethshemesh receive the ark and they start thinking of it... Uh, what's the opposite of, re- opposite of reverently? Profanely. Okay, irreverently works too, but profanely is the word I was looking for. And what did God do to them in 1 Samuel 6? He killed 50,000 of them because they looked at the ark. Now, it's not just, oh, they, they happened to catch it out of the corner of their eye or they looked at it and, wow, that was interesting. No, it's the idea of the look there in 1 Samuel 6 is that it was a, a steady gaze, an irreverent kind of gaze towards the ark. And God says, no, I'm not something to be gazed at. And so there are three problems with what David was doing, although he had a good motive. The first is that the ark was transported in the wrong way with the wrong people and with the wrong covering. And for those reasons, 
God killed Uzzah for his irreverence. So I think God here is actually lovingly giving Israel a powerful reminder that he is holy and that he must be worshipped according to his revealed expectations. That worship cannot, should not, be done flippantly or thoughtlessly or without regard for what God wants, for what God has revealed to us in His Word. You know, this is what might make it easier for me to worship God. Right? We can't argue that, that there was convenience in leaving the ark on a cart or putting it on a new cart. We can't argue about convenience. But you know, sometimes we need to sacrifice convenience in order to have reverence. We need to give up what might be more convenient in order to have reverence for God. What is it that God wants in worship? Let's find out about it and then do it. Believers should reverently worship God. Secondly, in verses 12 through 23, we see that believers should joyfully worship God. Believers should joyfully worship God. With the passing of time, David realizes that it's not that God's opposed to the fact of the ark coming to Jerusalem. That wasn't the problem. Because God blessed the house where the ark resided, Obed-Edom, probably a Levite again, who happened to reside nearby. And so I think the point that God's making there in verse 11 is, you know, the idea of me judging Uzzah and Israel in effect is not because I don't want to have my presence there in Jerusalem. The idea is that I want to be, have it done in my way. And so David, David realizes that. In verse 12, some people tell him, hey, do you realize that Obed-Edom's house is being blessed this whole time, that the ark is staying there. David, obviously during this time, again, is studying the Scriptures and realizing that he had done it wrong. And now he starts to prepare again. And now we're going to have the ark lead us up to Jerusalem. And so in verses 12, verses 12 to 16, we see the arrival of God's presence involves our joyful praise. The arrival of God's presence involves our joyful praise. First Chronicles 15 tells us that David figured it out, but also I hope you can see this even in our text that David had figured it out. That he didn't take the cart up the second time on he didn't take the ark up the second time on the cart. Notice verse 13. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, the bearers. Okay, so it's not on the cart anymore. They're not standing along a cart. They're bearing it on their shoulders. And we know from 1 Chronicles 15 that these are actually Levites. So David examined the Scriptures, found out the proper mode of transportation for the ark, selected the right man, uh, the right men, presumably had it covered like it ought to have been covered, and then started on their eight-mile trip once again. Well, when they took their first six steps, according to verse 13, they decided, you know what? We're going to stop right here and just sacrifice to the Lord. Make sure that we are ritually clean before the Lord. And, and obviously offer sacrifices of a burnt offering and, and also a, a thanksgiving offering. Instead of anger and fear, David and the people are now recognizing that God is behind this move. And so they come up to Jerusalem with joy. We see that joy in verse 14. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And he was wearing a linen ephod. The prospect of God's presence is something that brings joy to him. And so he 
lacks all kind of constraint and just dances along with the rest of the people at the joy of God's presence coming to Jerusalem. This joy is a contrast from what we just saw in verses 6 through 11, the sobriety that we had when Uzzah died. This is what the presence of God ought to do for us. It shouldn't be simply a time of, of fear and anger. There is a, a healthy kind of fear. shouldn't be anger uh, but, towards God, but there should be a healthy kind of fear that we have toward God. But reverent, or worship ought to be primarily about joy. We shouldn't feel like we're always walking on eggshells around God's presence, but we should have the confidence that when we come to Him, we're doing it on His terms. And so that should bring us joy, that He's allowing us to come into His presence. This joy is counteracted or contrasted with the disdain of his wife. She can't stand it. We'll see that in just a minute. Verses 17 to 19, we see that the arrival of God's presence demands our best sacrifices. Demands our best sacrifices. David had sacrificed to the Lord just after six steps in verse 13. And then when they arrived in verses 17 through 19, they they sacrifice the best of their offerings, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. One of the things that the, the people of Israel would do after a peace offering, the beauty of the peace offering was that it was a fellowship offering. That is, that they, the, the individual worshiper, could have fellowship with God. And so God would take the best portion of the meat, that would be burned up, and the rest of the animal would be split up among the, the worshiper. And then the worshiper would take that back to his family, presumably, or eat it right there. And it would be a symbol that God was at peace with with them. That they were sharing in the goodness of God. And so apparently what happens here in verses 17 through 19 is that verse 19, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude, some kind of food. Now, this could have been part of the sacrifice or it could have been something else, but the point is that God is pleased with our actions here. We have fellowship, peace with God. And they each take this food back to their home. And then in verses 20 through 23, we see the arrival of God's presence requires our humble disposition. It requires our joyful praise, our best sacrifices, and then our our, our humble disposition. So David has this portion, apparently, of the peace offering. He brings it home to his wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul. But his wife is not very happy to see him. Notice her sarcastic response here in verse 20. Oh, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today, dancing like a fool, as you did in front of the slave girls. I mean, the lowest members of society, David. You're the king. I mean, how distinguished are you? That's the sarcasm in in her voice. And Michael's point is that my father would never do something like that. My father would never look as foolish as you did today with the arrival of the ark. And each time that she's mentioned here, she's mentioned as the daughter of Saul rather than the wife of David. I think the reason for that is that you know we, we sometimes do this jokingly with our kids, right? Did, did you hear what your son did today while you were gone? What your son did today. Okay, so when they do something bad, he's your son. And, and that's the idea here, similar, that Michael is the daughter of Saul. She follows the characteristics of her father rather than 
is on the same page with her husband. And so each time that she's mentioned three times, the daughter of Saul. Because she was more concerned about image. She was more concerned about... She had this mindset probably that that they owned the kingdom, that it belonged to their family rather than it belonged to God and we're simply managers of what He's given to us. And David responds to her in a humble way. And we might look at his words and say, I mean, he actually called himself humble, so that doesn't sound very humble, but I'm going to argue that this is actually David's humble response. And David's response in verses 21 and 22 is, listen, my audience is not primarily the nation of Israel or any, even the lowest of society, the slave girls. My audience is the king of kings. Isn't that what he says in verse 21? He said to Michael, it was before the Lord. And then he throws this little dig in here. Who chose me over your father, by the way, to appoint me ruler over the people of Israel. And then at the end of verse 21, therefore I will celebrate before the Lord. This God that I'm embarrassing myself before is the God who chose me to be the king. And I'm at his service. And then in verse 22, he makes this peculiar statement that sounds prideful. He says, I will be more lightly esteemed than this, and I will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. The idea of humble here, I think, is, is, is the idea of humiliation. So I think what he's saying is, I will be more lightly esteemed more lightly praised than this, and I will be hum- humiliated in my own eyes. I'm going to lower myself even so that when people look at me, they may think that I am an embarrassment to the nation of Israel, but I don't care because my primary concern is about being humble before God about acknowledging my position before God. And if that means that I'm dancing like a fool, if it means that people look at me and talk about me, I don't care. And then the author of Samuel puts in this interesting note that just happens to be right after our story in verse 23. A note about Michael's barrenness. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. It doesn't say, therefore, this happened but it seems to me that this was connected to her response, her disdain for her husband and for the glory of God in exchange for the glory of her, herself and her own kingdom resulted in her barrenness, which was a sign of judgment in the Old Testament. And so I think that's put there purposely to show that God was not happy with Michael's response. So God must be reverently and joyfully worshipped. And I believe that God expects both of these. We might say, well, which one is better? Um, I think He wants both of them. David's initial worship was joyful, but it, I think it was irreverent. God said, that, he said as much um, when it told us the reason why Uzzah had died. Because he, he, David, led the people to neglect the clear commands of God with regard to transporting the ark. ark. Part of having a vital, healthy relationship with God is knowing God. It's knowing the things that, that He likes. Knowing the things that we should avoid. And then doing the things that He likes and avoiding the things that He doesn't. 
And we're reminded tonight that God likes proper worship. God expects proper worship. So let me give you two principles and an application tonight. First, principle number one, carelessness in worship results in spiritual disaster. Carelessness in worship results in spiritual disaster. There's two tragedies that we see with the movement of the ark or the desire to move the ark. First, the death of Uzzah. Second, the barrenness of Michael. Both of these, I think, are a result of God's view of irreverent, flippant, joyless worship. We might look at at this seemingly harsh judgment by God and think, you know, how could God be so cold? I mean, if I were God, I would simply call down from heaven before they did that wrong movement. Before the cart even started. And I would tell them that they're doing it wrongly. I would tell them, don't transport it in this way. Or if I were God, I would kill those oxen or something in order to make this not happen. But friends, who are we to judge God? Who are we to stand in the place of God and judge His motives and His actions? Is it not true that all of His ways are right? And in fact, God had, if we think about it, God had already done what was merciful and good by writing down His expectation for them, right? He wasn't giving new information. Oh yeah, by the way, here's one other thing I wanted you to know. I hadn't told you up to this point, but when you transport the ark, put it on poles. He didn't have to say that again. Why? He already said it. And so God had been merciful in leaving them with the expectation that He had for them. I mean, how often do we stand in judgment of God and His ways? We look at Ananias and Sapphira and they're killed for their blasphemy and lying to the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Corinthians 11, some of you are sick and some are even sleeping because they don't take the Lord's Supper seriously. Well, God, why don't you just tell them? And the answer is what? Why doesn't God just tell them? The answer is He already has. Friends, any failures that we have on our part to meet up to the standard of God is not the fault of God. It's like a teacher or a professor who lays out all the requirements for his class at the beginning of a semester and says, this is what you need to do to get a passing grade. And you as a student come to the end of the class not fulfilling the requirements and say, why am I getting a failing grade? If you, if you saw how bad my grade was, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you give me extra credit? And the reality is no blame ought to go to the teacher because the requirements were laid out. And how dare we blame our sin on the God who mercifully has told us exactly what He wants us to know. Everything that He wants us to know. 2 Peter 1, verse 3 says that His divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. No blame can be put on God for our sin, can it? And at the heart of this kind of thinking, this carelessness in how we worship God, is a mindset that has determined that God somehow needs us. Isn't that what Uzzah must have been thinking? You know, I need to protect God. The ark of God, the ark of God needs me. And what God is powerfully reminding David 
and Israel is that He doesn't need our protection. We need His. This is going to be clearer next week when we look at uh, chapter 7 because David's going to say, God, I, I want to build a house for you. And God says, no, you, you don't have to do anything for me. Okay, I am going to build a house for you. Recognize who's the one that's in control and that needs the help. Who, who's the one that, that's in control and who's the one who needs the help? You see, we, we don't have to protect God. God needs to protect us. And when we recognize that, that, that is a humble recognition of our position. David recognized that. Part of... Part of David's humility is going to the Scripture and saying, you know what, God, I don't, I don't know how to transport this ark, and so I need to go back to what you have said. That's humility. Recognizing his place in light of who God is and what he's told him to do. Second principle I think that we see in this passage is that obedience trumps passion. Obedience trumps passion. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, it's more important what's in your heart than what you actually do? Or maybe they might say it this way, why you do something is more important than how you do something? The implication is that my passion can kind of override my actions. So as long as I'm, uh, I have a right heart behind it, it doesn't matter what I actually do. You know, maybe if I'm not as precise as I ought to be, that's okay because I have a good heart behind it. And I think the implication in this passage is that, you know, I think Uzzah had a great deal of passion, right? He wanted to see the ark of God make it to Jerusalem. David, the same thing. The man of passion. I think obedience is more important according to this passage. Now, Let me just be clear that it's true that cold obedience is definitely no pleasure to God. So don't think, well, if I can just robotically follow all of God's commands, it doesn't matter what's in my heart. Okay, What what I'm saying is not just do all the motions. The Pharisees clearly showed the other extreme. And, you know, in Amos, God said, I don't want your sacrifices. You bring all these sacrifices, I don't want them. But what I'm suggesting is that a rudderless passion is also of no pleasure to God. A disobedient passion, passion is no pleasure to God. God wants both passion and obedience. He wants them both. But if He had to choose one, He'd choose obedience. Because what obedience does is it actually shows our heart. It shows that we're willing to find out what God wants and then do it. That's why He says through the Old Testament prophets, that to obey is better than to sacrifice. Romans 10.2 says that they had a zeal for God, but not in according to knowledge. So they had the passion, but it wasn't according to what God wanted. You see, God would rather have informed obedience than ignorant passion. And the point is that we don't give up on passion or obedience. Well, I guess I'm just going to do things mindlessly. The point is that we need both. That zeal, our zeal for God, cannot be divorced from our obedience to God. But if we are going to obey, then we, we are going to want to do it in the right way, which suggests that our hearts are behind our actions. That's why obedience is more important. It's more important than efficiency. Sometimes the most efficient way to do things is not always the best. 
right? With the transport of the ark, transportation of the ark, it was more efficient to use the cart. But that's not what God wants. He wants obedience. So even if something takes more time, maybe doesn't get us the results that we want in, in the time that we want, that's okay because obedience is more important. So, let's think about how we can apply this to our lives. And it is that we must make proper worship our top priority. This passage, I think, is about worship. About making God the center of what we do. Like Brian Trainer was saying this morning, you know, if Christ is at the center of history, then He ought to be the center of our lives. And that's really what, what we ought to think in, in terms of God's presence here in Second Samuel 6. That, that God's presence ought to be at the center of our lives. God, our worship of God ought to be at the center of what we do. So how can we do that at our church? How can we make worship our top priority? Well, can I just tell you individually and, and it's also a reminder to myself that we ought to plan for worship. We ought to plan for worship. We ought to plan to be here. Not just to come and flippantly kind of just not think through what we're about to do, but actually to prepare our hearts for worship, prepare to be here. Worship is not for, you know, when I have everything else taken care of. You know, if I'm not too busy, and I I realize I'm probably talking to the choir, you're here on Sunday night, you could be doing a number of other things. But, but, we need to make sure that we plan for worship. Not when, just when we feel like it. But plan to be there and plan, plan to be here. Plan to participate in worship. Worship is not a passive activity where we kind of just sit back like we watch TV and kind of just veg, right? We, we kind of inactively just sit there and it does something for us only. Worship is an active it's an active response of our hearts. And we're actually focusing, we ought to be, focusing on what's going on in the service, what kind of words we're singing, why we're giving money to this church, why, what, what we're hearing from God's Word, what ought my response to be, what are all these other people doing here, and how can I build them up in the most holy faith? How can I spur them on towards love and good work? So plan for worship. Plan to participate, to actively engage in worship. Plan to listen to God. Plan to respond to God. There's a simple way you can do that. Just pray and ask God to to help you with that. God, today we're going to hear from Your Word. Would You speak to me today? I know that I'm not perfect. Would You just open up Your Word and open up my eyes to, to the reality of life? Show me where I need to praise You better. Show me where I need to obey you more faithfully. Show me where I need to submit. Show me where I need to eradicate sin. And so let me just say practically, one of the ways that you prepare yourself for worship and that I prepare myself for worship, and you you realize that there are different results that you get when you prepare properly. And what I'm talking about is the night before. Get some sleep. I realize that everyone has a busy life and that sometimes sleeping in church is unavoidable. I was there too, okay? I used to sit in the pew. I still do on occasion, but, but I used to do the same thing. So I realize that, that there are some times with, when just life and kids and, and jobs and all sorts of things, just it's difficult. 
but but let's be honest that we prepare for the things for which we value most. And if we value worship most, and if God's concerned with actually how I respond to Him, if God's concerned with more than just me showing up, attendance, check, okay, that person made it to church, I'm good with them. If God's concerned with more than that, then why would I not want to prepare myself for that? You see, we prepare for the things that we value most. Don Carson says, sometimes the most godly thing that you can do is go to bed. You know, we have so many things that we have to do and and get done. And, you know, sometimes the most godly thing we can do is just get some sleep. Recognize, you know what, God, I can't do all of this. And I have to depend on you. So some things are just going to have to be left undone. Now, what those things are, we can actually um, sin against God and ignoring our responsibilities. I hope you recognize kind of the balance that you have to make there. But sometimes we, um, I think the times when we stay up more than we ought to have less to do with filling our responsibilities and more with feeding our pleasures. Okay, so, so just a practical thing, just get some sleep. And when you're here for worship, be ready for it and and participate in it. Because God desires that we are here, that we want to be here, that we're doing it His way and we're doing it joyfully. And doesn't God deserve that? I mean, does God deserve any less than our best worship? I say, well, we're doing this every week. I mean, maybe just once in a while I can do that. But but no, it, it ought to be every time. I mean, think about it. Every time that the ark was transported, just to kind of tease out this analogy. I mean, is it okay if one time it's transported on the ark because, hey, we already did it the other time on the poles? I think every time God expects us to do it and, you know, we we ought to be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Ask God for help. Father, we have a high calling we have the great privilege of coming before You, the God and the Creator of all the universe, and to come and and bow ourselves down reverently in worship to You for who You are and all that You've done, most notably the reconciliation that comes through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we want to begin by acknowledging Your greatness and acknowledging Your great worth and also praising You that You have made us a part of Your family and given us the uh, ability and the, um, the position in order to come and worship You. But then, Lord, secondly, we want to acknowledge our failures that at times we mindlessly go through the activity of worship. We do it passively. We um, are thinking more about how we can be uh, how we can feed our own pleasures or what, what things satisfy us the most rather than what satisfies you the most. Sometimes we don't think about the technique or, or what kind of elements you require and, and what kind of manner you require them in. And so, Lord, we want to ask for your forgiveness and your cleansing. We're thankful for passages like this that remind us that you are a holy God and that you have lovingly told us exactly what you expect of us. And so, Lord, we pray that You would help us to be faithful to continue, continually search the Scriptures to find out what it is that pleases You and then continue to refine our method of worship. 
Lord, we don't want to robotically go through the Christian life and go through our worship services. We want to give ourselves wholly to You, and You deserve nothing less than our reverent and joyful worship. So help us, we pray. Lord, help us to make all of our life a, a kind of worship to You, sacrifice of praise, and we, we know that You will receive glory from that. In Jesus' name, amen.